Welcome to the Your Creativity Podcast. We have long-form conversations featuring incredible creatives from all walks of life, sharing their unique journeys, and more with our quirky panel of hosts, featuring Dylan Mazziotti, Steve Hatch, Terry Burden, and Jessica Richardson. Welcome back, everybody, to Your Creativity. We are back on the podcast with one of those multi-hyphenates that we like to have on. Um, I, this one, I don't even know where to start, but I, from where I know her best as a, a lettering artist, and then things just kind of uh, go from there. Uh, Jessica Hish. <laughs> how are you, Jessica? I'm doing good. I think I think that makes sense. So that's sort of how I want the world to perceive me anyway, too, is lettering artist first, everything else second. So, so yeah. So welcome to the podcast. I've met you a couple of times when you come to speak at uh, design events here in Salt Lake. And you'll be back soon up in Logan, up at the university up there. Indeed, uh, I'm excited for it. I don't get to stay very long because it's like a quickie midweek thing, but it should be a fun trip either way. Yeah, I, I I always like your speaking engagements because you know they're swearing and you you just you're rowdy and that, that's my kind of vibe. Um, well, let, let's start with the lettering. Kind of give us a you know online people can find your full story, but just kind of give us a quick version of your story, how you you got into lettering. Yeah, totally. So um, I always wanted to make art as a kid. Um, but didn't really know what that was going to translate into. I just figured I was going to be a painter because it was like working in two in like the second dimension was my favorite. Like I could draw, I could paint. Like I was never like a 3D person at all. And I'm still not. It's like hard for me to think in the third dimension. But um, when I ended up going to art school, um, I ended up, you know, we weren't allowed to declare our majors until junior year. And so you had to just take a ton of different studios. And I really loved everything. But the class that I was surprised that I super loved was graphic design. Um, and I think it really unlocked something for me where I felt like as an artist, I didn't really know what I was going to do to have a reason to make art every day because I didn't necessarily have like an opinion to share yet as an 18 year old white girl from rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> but, uh, but graphic design allowed me, it gave me permission to make art by making it about problem solving and about like responding to someone else's needs or a project brief. And, um, I would have ended up an illustration major had our program had a more thorough like illustration program at the time. They um, it was pretty old school. And so the people that ended up being illustrators sort of came out of either graphic design or printmaking. And so um, but we did a lot of image making for our design projects. And so that's sort of how my early getting into doing lettering happened in college because I really loved illustration, but really loved typography and design. And I wanted all of the typography in my projects to match the illustration that I was doing. So what I would do is draw my own fonts, um, which is what I thought that it would have been called at the time, because I was both broke and couldn't buy fonts. And then also just really loved having things feel cohesive. And um, after I graduated, I really thought I was gonna be like a full-time illustrator, but I ended up getting a job with Louise Feely, who is this really legendary graphic designer, but do, who does a lot of historical based hand lettering as a part of her projects. Um, she wouldn't have called herself a lettering artist at the time, um, even though lettering is a big part of her business. It just sort of fell out of favor as a, a design practice over the years because 
like lettering and calligraphy were huge in the 80s and 90s. And I feel like they became like such a thing then that they fell out of fashion a little bit. And people got really into like, you know, grunge fonts and all sorts of display fonts and things like that. And it felt like, why do we need to hire someone to draw things when there's like this abundance of fonts available? And so, um, but I found personally that I would go on these hunts trying to find like exactly the right font for the thing that I was working on. And I could never find it, even if it was really close, it was never more than like 70 to 80% of the way there. And I found that the combination of having to look for things and then not really feeling all the way satisfied with what I found made me be like, oh, it's so much faster if I just draw everything from scratch. And so it, I started just like really getting into doing lettering work and loving it because it was a combination of these design skills that I had learned in school and an understanding of typography, but then also the process is really similar to illustration and just like the way that you work with clients and whatever, it's basically illustration, but with typography as a subject. And um, so this was in 2008 and there were just not really that many people doing lettering at the time um, on a visible professional level, you know, like people were doing it as a part of projects, but not, no one was calling themselves a lettering artist anymore, except for like a handful of dudes who were in their sixties. And so, um, it was basically like me and maybe like a dozen or so of my peers, which we all knew each other, you know, from the internet or from New York or whatever. And we all worked in quite different styles, you know, like some people did chalk lettering, some people did murals, some people did, you know, more tactile stuff. And, uh, and everybody was sort of friends with each other. And we all came up as sort of this first class of the, like the new wave of lettering. And then, um, but I in particular was sort of the one stomping around telling everybody about it all the time. Um, and so I think that's one of the ways that I got really well known within the field is that not only was I, you know, just a part of that first wave, but I got asked to speak at so many conferences early on in my career because of a sort of viral project that I did called Daily Dropcap. And at all of these conferences, I was explaining the differences between like lettering and calligraphy and type design and what all those things mean within the world of like the typographic arts. And within a few years, you know, it went from this like zero visibility of this field to it like people coming up to me at conferences and telling me that they were like taking a lettering class in college and things like that and so it just really exploded um in between probably like that 2009 to 2011 12 period and now it's just like there's so many lettering artists and I bet a lot of like young folks that are getting in the field have no idea who I am because at this point they're like <laughs> So much more inspired and influenced by the people that are like better at being influencers on online, you know, and doing like cool tutorials and iPad and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the long and short. And ever since I've been, I've been working for myself since 2009 and have worked for all kinds of clients. Uh, I do stuff for advertising, film titles, book covers, um, logos are a big part of my work now. Um, but yeah, just kind of runs the gamut. I've done postage stamps and worked with Wes Anderson and like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about the postage stamp. Cause you're able to put that onto your wedding invitations. What kind of, well, I actually, I actually did not have a physical wedding invitation. I had an oh. online wedding invitation, but, um, but I was able to put them on my thank you cards. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. 
But yeah, no, it was pretty cool. I, um, when I worked with Louise, we designed three postage stamps while I was there. So I was able to create the artwork for three postage stamps that eventually got released. What happens with, um, postage stamps is a lot of times there's an art director that sort of commissions people to make designs that they then propose to this consortium of people to like approve or not approve. And so, um, they had hired Louise to make proposals for a love stamp and she and I went nutso and made a lot of proposals. <laughs> so, um, what ended up happening, which I feel like is very rare, is that um, they released three separate ones over the course of three years or so. And then um, they also, I had only been working for Louise for about two and a half years. And so we did that work towards the end of when I was working there. And so the first one released like the year, I think, after I left. And then they hired me personally to do another stamp, like not knowing that I had worked on all those ones with Louise, like in the interim time. And then we released my stamp. And then after that, another stamp came out that I worked on. And then another stamp came out that I worked on. So I've actually worked on four postage stamps, uh, which is crazy. That is crazy. I, I've interviewed Aaron Draplin and he he shared his experience making his, the stamp he made. And I think that it's just a cool, interesting project to be involved with. And oh yeah, it's really cool. I, I made a I made another stamp design that hasn't been released yet, so I hope that someday it does. It was meant to be, I think, like a holiday stamp, but it's still in the in the ether somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, t tell us about uh, working with the big brands, like you know, like Target and Adobe, and you know, what what what's that process like? Um, well, everybody kind of has really feelers out kind of. Yeah. And working with them is really different. And like, it's really different because even with those big companies, there's different teams. And right. so I've worked with Adobe in really different ways. Like, uh, like one of the projects that I worked on was sort of more of a like influencery thing where they had me and an R&B artist, like have a conversation. And then we had to sort of like promoted after and that one wasn't even like an artwork generation one and then I've done other ones where they've um sort of like hired me to help test out new software and be a part of like a group of people that create a piece of art with the new software that they're working with and then talk about the creation of that like publicly just to get people more aware of the software and so but every team is very different and the process is really different for how you work with them um and then with Target, it's similar. I've done work for Target Corporate where, you know, I'm doing stuff that basically only exists within Target as like artwork for inspiration on their walls or like whatever. And then I've also done uh, Target Cards, which is like I've worked with all kinds of different art directors for that over the years. I've probably done like 10 or 15 Target gift cards. And it's been all, almost always with different teams of people. Um, but they're really fun. Um, and then, I mean, getting like big... There's different kinds of like big work. There's like yeah. big work that is like corp like corporate work where you can also be very creative, but it's like it's like a more regular like this is a corporate job, this is a corporate budget, this is straightforward. And then there's like the big work that's like the cool work. Um, and that tends to be like the higher profile projects. But um, the corporate stuff is actually like much chiller. Like I feel like the cool, the cool projects are always like a pressure cooker and the timing is crazy and the budget's never as high and all this kind of stuff. And so I like to have a mix of, you know, projects that are straightforward, 
almost under the radar uh, and things that are like, oh, that's a cool thing. I can totally like grind on that for three days in a frenzy and it'll be seen everywhere, even though it like wasn't necessarily the highest paid thing I've ever done, you know? Yeah, sometimes you just got to do it because it, it's cool, you know, for yourself. Yeah, totally. I mean, some you and the thing that's really interesting is that you never know, like people will come to you and think that their thing is not that cool, but it, it like resonates with you personally. And so um, I, I heard this too about Lauren Holm, who's another lettering artist. She got approached by like uh, Bush's Baked Beans or something to do like an influencery ad for them. And her rep was like, oh, this is fine, I guess, you know, but it's not like uh the coolest project under the sun and she was like oh my god no i definitely have to do it i was like in love with these beans as growing up and me and my dad have all these memories like you just kind of never know what memories are going to be tied to something for people like i was the same way where i ended up doing a logo refresh for the general insurance and the i was just like couldn't praise this team enough where i was just like this is so cool i'm so excited i get to work on this insurance company for this commercial i used to watch at my grandma's house you know like yeah. like there's different like interesting parts of every project and it's like some things are just straight up cool cool uh and some things are really cool to you personally but other people are like sure i guess whatever um and so it's nice to be able to sort of like tickle all the ivories uh that you're as you're working rather than just being like one note all the same kind of stuff speaking of cool projects uh, wes anderson you know i've, I've loved his movies since movies since rushmore and 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 beyond and you got to work on moonrise kingdom with the the title the title graphics um tell us a little bit about um what happened there like um from what i understand somebody like was connected with him somehow and he was looking for someone yeah i mean most of the ways that i get work is just somebody on the art team throws my name out when they're like asking about who would be good for something. So I'm always grateful for like the random anonymous person that recommends me in a room. Like they, I mean, they couldn't even remember how my name got brought up, but what happened was um, the way that West works is really different. Obviously you, like you could probably imagine than the way a lot of other movie studios work. Like he basically has his people and has total creative control over things versus when you're working on a different kind of film, sometimes there's uh, an in-house agency at the film production company that you're working with, or sometimes they have an out-of-house agency that's doing a lot of the VFX work. And it's always like a collaboration and you're quite separated from like the filmmaking process itself. Um, but with Wes, I mean, you're working with the director of the film, which is very, very, very rare. And so um, I was first hired by one of his producers um, and he had two producers on the film and he had worked with them on a bunch of the other films too. And so um, she had hired me uh, to do a couple tests because they had been working with a uh, calligrapher initially. And just like the calligrapher was having a really hard time, like getting it to where Wes wanted it to be. And I think part of that is just because calligraphy is like a more rigid design method like you know art creation method yeah. so if you want to bend it in different directions it's like harder for calligraphers to get there versus like a lettering artist is a lot more wiggly with how they want to create and make art um and so we we did an initial test and then once we got the test approved then um then i was just working with west directly like over email 
um, which was really cool. And so uh, we it took about three or four months to for us to get all the titles done. And I ended up making two typefaces because they wanted to use them for the end credits as well. And so I made a, um, a like a more display. Well, there are two there. It's a script at two optical sizes. And so one is meant to be large and one is meant to be small, but they're meant to kind of look the same when you, they're paired at their right size. Yeah. And then um, I was able to release the font commercially too, which is cool. So it's for sale on my website called Tilda. And I love the name of it, Tilda. <laughs> which is totally just after, I couldn't name it after something with the film. Like that was part of my contract, yeah. but they didn't say anything about naming it after Tilda Swinton, basically. So yeah, it was in nearly all it was in the it. film. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Um, what should we talk about now? Um, what situations are most creative for you? You know, probably your procrastinate working projects, you know, that's on your own, but with like, um, you know, the bigger stuff is it, is it working with them directly or just kind of you getting the download, the download, and then just you burying yourself in it. I, you know, I find that I'm totally a typical designer where um, the more constraints I have, the easier it is for me to be creative. And so I don't like just like open-ended briefs. Like when I do right. my um, procrastinate working projects or like things that are more like passion projects that I'm doing on my own, they there's always some sort of kernel that's of like problem solving or that that I get under my butt that makes me like excited to do it. Um, but until I get that, I, I'm not like, this is one thing that I struggle with is I can't, I don't just like make art for the sake of art on a random day. You know, like I, I don't sit down and go, I want to make a poster today. And then like, think about it and make a poster. I just like, cannot make art without a brief, you know, or without some grand idea that like has been brewing in the background and I finally have time to do it, you know? Um, so I, I don't know, to me, I feel like the, the most important thing for me is being able to experience sort of every stage of the creative process in different ways. So um, sometimes I feel like I'm completely mentally depleted, you know, where I just haven't been sleeping and I'm in a high anxiety week or whatever. And in that week, I struggle with the sort of like beginning stages of a project that like ideation and, uh, you know, coming up with layouts from those ideas and really like trying to, you know, synthesize the visuals and the idea together. And so on those weeks, I tend to lean more heavily towards the production side of stuff. So if I can, if like, if I have some projects coming in and it's been a couple of weeks and it's been like a struggle, but just because of kid stuff or whatever, I'll tend to say yes to projects that I feel like are not extremely challenging in terms of like my mental capacity, but are challenging in terms of my craft making capacity. So then I can just really like dive in and get into flow mode and be like in maker mode versus if I feel like I haven't been like stimulated mentally in a while, I'll tend to pick projects that are thinkier projects. And then I don't even mind like in those circumstances, sometimes outsourcing parts of my creative process to speed it along. Um, and so it's, it's this real push and pull where I like, I love the whole process, but I would never want to do only one part of it or too much of one part of it. And I really lean the work that I take on based on what I feel like I'm going to be best at in that moment, because I just want to like make, you know, optimize my workflow to 
to enjoy it the most and make the best work. So, but the biggest part is just like enjoying it uh, and making sure that I actually like having fun while making the work. Gotcha. Um, who inspires you um, professionally? Um, oh, all kinds of people. I feel like there's a lot of folks that I follow on the internet that do different things. Um, one of the things that really inspires me is people that just like, are clearly just having so much fun with everything that yeah. they're doing and making. Cause I think it's really tough when you have been at it for a lot of years for it to not just turn into a job. And we sort of have to get into that, like entering and exiting our job mode where like, Oh, today I'm, I'm just at my job today. And then the next day you're like, I'm just having fun. I'm being creative. I'm a creator, you know, like whatever. And whenever I see people that clearly are just having loads of fun with whatever it is that they're doing. I find that really inspiring. Um, there is like Pablo Rochat is now like a very quite viral dude um, who he has an Instagram account and everything that he makes is so silly. Uh, he just does these like hilarious videos. Uh, and I, I would start describing them, but there's just too many at this point to even do it, but they're so good. Like every single one of them is just the smartest, most ridiculous. It's like, uh, if, if Christoph Neiman was more of a like stand-up comedian videographer, you know, it's like, that's who this guy is. The ideas are just so great. Um, and then there's this other dancer lady that I follow. Um, I, I'm going to blank on her name, but it's like Sarah McCramer or something like that. But she first got known as being like the hydraulic press girl where she, those videos of hydraulic presses smashing stuff. Yeah. Uh, she would do interpretive dances to what the smash thing was doing because <laughs> she's a professional dancer. And yeah. it's just so clear that she just has this wonderful sense of humor and is having a lot of fun. And then occasionally you get glimpses into like her little friend group of dancers and all the thing, the goofy stuff that they do together. And it just like that kind of stuff really kicks me up because I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this is this is fun. What we do is fun. We should be having fun, you know. And it makes a lot of the like getting in your head or feeling too serious about things or getting too businessy kind of like drip away a little bit when I see people that are just like having a ton of fun creatively. Yeah, love it. Yeah, I, I try to find stuff like that all the time because I used to watch TED Talks all the time, but that that got old after a while. So I just like to find these quirky little Instagrams that people are just goofing. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, my old studio mate, Eric Marinovich, he was always so good at just making like fun, weird, experimental stuff. And I'm not a particularly experimental person, um, especially when it comes to client work. Like I tend to stick really close to home for client stuff because I don't want to upset anyone or like, you know, I don't want to uh, experiment on someone else's dime, you know, like I want to experiment, yeah. but I don't want to do it uh, like while someone else is paying me because I want to do the, my best job that I can do. Um, but I was always very, like, I always very much admired, like, how he works that way. Um, and then there's this other um, designer, illustrator, Braulio Amato, um, who does these completely cuckoo bananas poster designs. And I love them so much because so many of them are just based on, like, observations around the world. And I think we all forget to leave our office or house sometimes and just like look at textures on walls and take pictures of random things you see and those can translate into really interesting designs and so I don't know like people that are both spending time having fun and also spending time in the real world and responding to it like I find that to be very inspirational um 
speaking of you know the world world streets you have a couple of brick and mortar stores um what what was the genesis of that just you know because you have three kids and you know all this freelance work where did where did that fit in how did it fit in well so there's a couple things. I I always thought about having a brick and mortar store. I feel like there's a lot of extroverted designers that have a dream of just like picking up a couple shifts at the local coffee shop to like have time to interface with human beings in a low pressure way. And yeah. so it part of it comes from that like random dream that I feel like a lot of people have where everybody just wants like a low key retail job for like a couple day like a couple hours a week just to like be a human in the world. And um and also too like I, again, with like the creating art for art's sake, I have a hard time creating work just for nothing. But if I'm making prints, like I love printmaking, um, I find it to be much more um, easy to get inspired to do that. But at the same time, it's like they're like making prints and then putting it online and having to photograph it and all this kind of stuff. It just takes time and it it creates this friction between the creation and the getting prints in people's hands and having like a physical space that's not an online place where you can test kitchen designs and like just make a couple of them and see how they do and see if anyone likes them. You know, it 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 really lessens the friction for creation in terms of printmaking for me um, because I don't have to think about making like an addition of a hundred or like, you know, whatever. And then, cause that's like a lot of pressure for the design to be something that's like more palatable or something that I feel like is going to sell better, um, in order to go through the steps of getting it online and to my, my distribution center, AKA my mom's house. And, uh, and yeah. And so like, so that's part of it. There's also the idea that like, we're increasingly more disconnected from each other um, than I feel like we even were in like earlier online days because it's so much harder to make online connections now because everybody has to be online just to basically like advertise themselves all the time um, instead of it being just this like funky forum where you go and have a group chat with people that are like-minded like that happens less and less I think and because of how the algorithms work there's no guarantee that you're seeing your friend's stuff and like or who's seeing your stuff or what you're putting out there is like finding its audience there's like before it was a lot more uh, straightforward, you know, like if you shared things in certain places, like everyone who followed you would mostly see it because the community was smaller. And then also because there wasn't all this, like, uh, everyone being a salesperson on the internet, it was, that was happening, but it wasn't like the primary objective of being online. And so I think like the brick and mortar stores came about because of wanting to feel more connected to people that like my artwork, you know, like having them be able to have a physical connection to like me and the place that it was created. Cause I make most of my prints here at my studio. And like, I think that the, the, the idea that in order for art to be valuable to people, they have to, it either has to be total speculation, like art market style, where it's like, you're treating it like the stock market, or you have to have an emotional connection to it. And it's hard to have an emotional connection to random stuff that you find on Pinterest, you know, yeah. like it's more like you want to have an emotional connection to the artists themselves. You want to have an emotional connection to a place and time that you experienced that thing. And that's really cool. And so being able to 
you know, sort of have a better connection with my audience and have them have a way to feel, you know, like to see new things and be a part of uh, my world is very fun. So that's like sort of why it all happened. And then the other thing that happens for me creatively and with, and professionally is that I go through these really like wait these productivity waves uh, with client stuff. So what happens is I'll get super busy for like three months. And during that three months, I'm not doing any biz dev. So then the following three months, I have nothing going on except for like trying to drum up work for the next wave of three months. And so I go through these really natural cycles throughout the year where I have these dips in client work that I usually fill with like self-authored projects and things like that. And so the retail stores happen in those dips. So I'm able to sort of like really heavily work on it while also trying to get some new client work. And then the client work is happening and I have to sort of let it be chill for a little while. And then that dies down and I can jump back into it. And it's just really nice to have this push and pull with my work where I don't have to be like in a constant, like what is lined up in next month mode, which is I think how most creatives work where they have to keep the ball rolling all the time, always making sure that there's something happening next month. I just kind of lean into the fact that it's hard to do that. And so I just love the breaks. I love the pauses that I get and use those to do my own work or catch up on things and do housekeeping, like, you know, creative and business housekeeping and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just always looking for ways to sort of like maximize those, that natural cycle so that I always feel like I have creative things to do and, uh, can hopefully make a little money along the way. So. Let's hear about each one. Uh, your, your one is called, uh, Jessica Hish and friends. And then it's, of uh, what, how did you phrase it? Uh, for drawing and is like a, a sister, not a sister store, but, a. Yeah, it's like a little, a little, a little sister store. A little sister um, store. Yeah. Tell us about each one. Yeah. So Jessica Hitch and Friends uh, was originally going to be named Drawling. And so I had trademarked the name Drawling because I really liked it and I wanted something that was memorable. Um, but then it's the space below my studio. And so my studio consists of this top floor that I'm in right now, um, which is about 800 square feet. Um and then the bottom floor is split. And so one side is my workshop where I have a bunch of my print gear. And then the other side is a storefront space. And so um, I knew that I wanted to have a lot of my work in the store, but then I also wanted to curate it with other stuff from, you know, people that I knew and objects that I've loved over my life. You know, I have this section on my website, which is very not updated called things I bought that I love. And it was just me basically being my own personal wire cutter of like, <laughs> like, this is the best coffee maker. I tried a couple of them, like buy these clogs. I've tried every kind of wooden clog and this is the clog, you know, like, uh, just for, I like talking about stuff that I like and I like helping people, uh, discover things and things like that. And so, um, a girlfriend of mine made a joke that wouldn't it be great if I had a store that was just all the things that I've bought that I love over time. And so other people can see those things because I'm a big curator of stuff. And also I have a really intense shopping problem. <laughs> like I love shopping. It's like, I, I basically just use it at like going to boutiques in other cities and, and countries is my like gallery, uh, 
activity. So rather than go to like museums and galleries, I'm just constantly in like little boutiques because I feel like you get, it's a real like uh, eyes on the ground approach to seeing what people are doing and making like in that place versus a gallery or a museum in which you're sort of like a couple years behind or seeing people that are at this like level that's not necessarily the scrappier level. So I really love like shopping for that reason because I feel like I can connect to smaller makers. And um, and so I've been basically like training uh, for this position as the primary buyer for these stores for my whole life because I love shopping. And so um, what happened was when I started to design the store downstairs and I put a bunch of my prints and stuff on the wall, because obviously my prints and artwork was something that I was definitely going to sell there. I realized that the store was so me that having it have another name might be weird to people because they'd be Googling like Jessica Hish store to come to this one. Um, Cause it is kind of like my, I love my neighborhood, but it's a little bit of a destination spot for most people because unless you work in the neighborhood, you're not down here very much, except like there's a cool restaurant zone. That's about, you know, a five minute walk away, but a lot of people don't come over this far. Um, and so with, with all the prints on the wall and then knowing that people that were coming here were coming here because it was my store, I was like, Oh, I should probably put my name in the, you know, in the store. And so the Jessica Hish and friends came because I knew that I wanted the store to be more than me. And so I wanted to curate stuff from people that other creatives that I know and other creatives that I aspire to know and things like that. So it has art books and beautiful, useful things. That's sort of the tagline of the store. So everything that's not art or a book has to be both beautiful and useful. And I just have a big thing about that with my work and with a lot of other things. Like I don't, again, like I don't like making work for work's sake. I like to make work to like fill a need um, or to respond to a brief or to solve a problem and things like that. So everything that's in the store has to have a utilitarian use while also being beautiful. So there's like, a, there's a zero tchotchkes rule. Um, and then I obviously, I, well, I'm not obviously, I write and illustrate children's books also and make art that is more children's centric. But um, I didn't want to put necessarily the kids art in the store downstairs because it really shifted the vibe. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm very conscious of store design and letting people know like the purpose of a shop through their initial impression. And I felt like if I had too much children's related stuff around or mixed in with like my curse word art and stuff like that, it would like be really odd. And so I was like, oh, that's a bummer. I guess I can't have my kids stuff here. I'll just have to do that another time. And then there was, it just turned out that there were these, all these openings in this really cool little shopping area that I used to live very close by and spent a lot of time in. Um, and I had always had a dream of having a shop there, but, you know, was like, oh, well, I have my shop here. That's all I need. Um, but I ended up reaching out to the landlord because I know one of the other tenants in the, in the area and the rent was a lot lower than I anticipated it was going to be. Um, and so I was like, oh, shoot, am I going to open a second store? <laughs> and so that's kind of how it ended up happening, where it just felt like um, this rare moment where there were a bunch of openings in this really popular shopping area that's so cute and hip. 
and it felt like it could be. So I had to frame it. Not that I have two stores, but I have like one store split between two locations. Cause that's kind of how the back end of it works. Yeah. Um, but they have really different inventory. It's just like the downtown one is so clearly like a grown up store and it kind of leans more stationary and, um, obviously my prints and things like that. And then the one in the alley, I was going to have it be like kind of a mix of adult and kids stuff. Cause the tagline is like all ages art supply. Um, but clearly what the neighborhood really needs is like more kids stuff. And so I still have like adult things in the store, but it leans way more heavily towards the kids stuff. Um, just because there's no other kids place in the neighborhood. And so, um, but yeah, so it's, so it's been really interesting. And I feel like my long-term goal with them is like, I do have three children. So I have three future shopkeeps that I can keep a real eye on. Like once everybody's a teenager, and so, <laughs> you know, I'm just like a farmer from the 1800s, like birthing my own workforce, you know, <laughs> and the general store and, you know, the, the mercantile and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's yeah, may as well. I mean, like, I mean, of course, I, I I have other employees and stuff that are there now, and I'm not going to kick anyone out of their position when my kids come of age or whatever. But they want to pick up a couple of hours as someone's like shadow intern or whatever, just to have a cool after school activity and learn a bit about business management and stuff like that. Why not? So one of your many hyphenates is author, and you mentioned the children's books, but you've also done design books and you know some other quirky stuff. How many books have you done total and are there any coming up? Yeah, I have, I think six books total. Um, so in progress is my um, sort of textbook meets coffee table book. That's about my process and work. That one is out of print. So it's a little hard to get a copy these days. It was up on Amazon for a while and they have since pulled the copies down, um, which sucks for me because I was basically like, putting them in my store downstairs just by buying them off Amazon and selling them for like the same MSRP that I was buying them for just because I wanted to have them in the store. So once I run out, that's it. Like I don't have any more. Um, and then I've done three picture books that are out and about. And I'm, I have another book that's coming out in October. And so that one is called my first book of fancy letters. Um, and it's, I'm really excited about it and pre-orders are up for that now. So you can direct your people to there would be wonderful. And I also have a, um, a journal called brave, kind and grateful, which sort of takes some of the themes from my first two children's books and turns it into an all ages journal. So it's meant they, it ends up getting zoned as like a kid's thing, but it's honestly kind of more for the sort of fourth and fifth grade up to grown up uh time frame where there's essays within it talking about all these different ways to feel grateful and uh embracing gra it's a gratitude journal so it's about like documenting moments of gratitude throughout the day um but yeah and then is that it i think that's it that's five or six sure and then yeah. I've done a bunch of like writing PDFs and stuff like that on the internet. So uh, like I do a lot of business writing and, and business workshops and things. And so those are mostly downloadables now, but I do want to do a print edition of some of those later, later on. That's going to be my next dry spell project is <laughs> making a print edition of my dark art of pricing situation. Nice. Um, and uh, you, you've sent some teaching online, you've done Skillshare and um, some is that the only one or was there one other one? 
Yeah, I've done um, most of my creative workshops are on Skillshare um, and I've been hosting some them sometimes both in person and online, um, like live on my own. Um, so if you want to join my newsletter, that's the best way to find out about those. I don't do them often because they are a big commitment and time suck. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then I have a, uh, a business class that I created uh, about a year, a year and change ago called the dark art of creative business. It started as the dark art of pricing. And then I expanded that to be like a much more thorough business class. And so it's about a five hour class and I have that one up on teachable and it's super reasonable. It's like $35 just because I want, um, you know, business information to be universally accessible. Um, so yeah, that one's up there. So teachable, my teachable is like jessicahish.teachable.com. And right now there's only that class on there, but if I do like future creative classes, that's probably where I'll host them. Do you have a, a dream project? Like for many people like Wes Anderson would be like a dream project or mine for a long time with uh, designing for the Sundance Film Festival. Um, do, do you have still have a like dream project out there or is just like being in it all the time to dream? Well, I feel like um, I tend to not to not dream too much because yeah. I'm, I'm it's, I find it self-limiting for me because I tend to dream way less than what comes my way. <laughs> I'm pretty easy to please, you know, I'm like, Oh, just happy to be here. Like most of the time. Yeah. Um, but one thing that would be really cool is that most of the projects that I do are like more one-off kind of things, you know, and it'd be awesome to have much more of like a long-term partnership with certain clients where, you know, like, as I love working with target on these like cards and things like that. But if I could do like a line of stationery or whatever, you know, like where I have my own little thing and there's like a bunch of designs within that umbrella, that would be super fun. So it's sort of that like licensing world. I feel like I haven't really broken into yet and it would be fun to explore. So it's like, that's kind of definitely in my dream space of like, oh, if only I could make, you know, wrapping paper designs and Christmas cards as one big package, you know, where people could get the whole thing at once, you know, that'd be fun. Very cool. Um, all right. I, I think it's time for our bonus questions. We do, do these to close out the, the episode and some of them are really fun. Um, so the first one is pretty serious. What does creativity mean to you? Um, creativity means to me sort of activating parts of your brain that are able to problem solve in ways that are different than like unique to you um, or like different than what a default way of doing it would be where like you're looking for the both like the most elegant solution or like the most streamlined solution but also the thing that's the most memorable and the thing that involves craft in some way like I feel like that's that's a bit of creativity to me like and people and so I I feel like creativity doesn't necessarily have to mean you're in the arts you know like creativity right. just means coming up with a like using your own perspective to come up with really unique ways of solving problems you know, my, my wife doesn't consider consider herself uh creative but when she plans like our our trips or like projects around the house she just is so detail orientated and just the way she like 
puts them together it just amazes me sometimes yeah like we had a we had a nanny for our kids when they were little like which is seems super bougie like because I didn't grow up in a time in which that was a common practice but when you live in like a major city and like it's really hard to get into childcare places it's pretty common and our nanny I loved her uh because she was both like awesome with the kids and was just basically this like benevolent grandparent that just you know had some boundaries with them but mostly was just like a big love factory um but on top of that she was really OCD about cleaning, but had this very artistic eye for like arranging things in the house where she could make our house look like a high-end hotel just by like moving some random stuff around in the kitchen. And I, I like couldn't believe it. Cause I, you know, I'm a very great person. Obviously I'm here talking to you about creativity on this podcast, but she had this eye for like interior layout and design as like a 55 year old El Salvadoran nanny that with no creative background that I just completely lack. And I was always so impressed with it. <laughs> so I'd be like, man, you just have the, you have the eye, Elena. You yeah. like are an artist for sure in your own way. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, the next one is who is your favorite Muppet and why? Ooh, favorite Muppet. Let me think. God, I got to like Sesame look Street, at any Jim Henson. So like Labyrinth and Fraggle and, you know, every, uh -huh. everything. I was like, uh, I loved Fraggle Rock growing up. That was one of my top ones. And Eureka's Castle, is that within the Henson verse? I think so. Yeah. I was like really into Eureka's Castle. That was of my time and place. Um, I'm trying to think of what was my favorite one growing up, though. I really like Grover. Like Grover is a solid character, good goofball. He reminds me a lot of my middle child. I feel like Grover has middle child energy. Um, but I think as a kid, I was like really into Big Bird. I think like, you know, I just liked his like gentle nature, you know, <laughs> it was kind of like a high anxiety kid. And I just liked the soothing nature of Big Bird. Just seemed like a good friend to have. Yeah, he was always just so sweet. And it was, I thought it was weird those years when Miss, uh, Mr. Snuffleupagus was like not real. So like everybody thought he was crazy. I just thought that was always kind of sad, that that, yeah. that little segment. <laughs> but yeah. And then the next one in the movie of your life, who would play you? Who would play me? Ooh, I don't know. Um... I feel like it's like hard to know in terms of looks or vibes, you know, when I, when I was growing up, people used to tell me that I looked like Jennifer Aniston or Mandy Moore. Those were my two people that I would get all the time. I don't know if you can see it in my face or anything anymore, or if it's changed, I feel like glasses throw the whole situation off. Um, but I don't know if there's any celebs that I like currently look like, I feel like my look has changed a lot as I've gotten a little blonder and shorter haired when I had darker hair, it was a different, a different scene. And then what, what genre would the movie be? What genre would the movie be? Yeah. Um, oh, it would totally be like a rom-com in which the main character discovers that all she needs is herself all along or like whatever. And then, but there's still like the, there's like the love of her life is still clearly in like the wings, but it's not the like primary objective of the, of the film because I feel like uh 
I'm of course in this like wonderful relationship with my husband, but I don't like the movies where it's just like all about getting the husband at the end of it. And I feel like it would be some sort of like creative empowerment lady movie or something. There you go. So uh, let's run through your social so somebody can find your stuff, order your book and, you know, see you when you speak. Um, so uh, what, what's, what's your handles everywhere? Sure. I'm um, on Instagram and threads primarily right now as Jessica Hish, no space, no dash, just my name. And then um, in either of those, if you look, peek into my bio, I have a link tree that has links to a bunch of stuff, including the pre-orders for my new book, including the my mailing list uh, for my newsletter, which I, that's where I, I have a lot of fun with the newsletter. It's where I kind of <laughs> share more about the things that are going on in both my life and creative stuff and talk about upcoming speaking things and stuff like that. Um, so the newsletter, it would be great if you guys could sign up for the newsletter and yeah, that's it. I'm still technically on X, but I'm not really there anymore. It made me too sad. So I had to sort of take a break. Yeah. I, 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 I have an account there just to kind of like keep an eye on things, but I like don't practice there. It's just, it, it went bad when things went bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I honestly was like the most intense Twitter user of all time. It was my primary platform. Um, and I'm, so it was, it was like a grieving, a, a, an inside death when I had to step away from it because I feel yeah. like it was such a big part of my identity. And so I've been able to rebuild it a little bit on threads, like threads is fun. I've been using it similarly to how I use Twitter, but it's not the same, you know, it's a different vibe for sure. So, um, but it's a good salve in the, in between. Yeah. Yeah. It, it came at the right time. And I, I think Facebook kind of saw that and they're like, okay, let's pull the trigger. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on a couple of the other ones too, like Mastodon and Blue Sky. But I found that um, while Blue Sky is super fun, I feel like you have to be there all the time in order to like kind of understand what's going on in conversation. Cause it's like an inside joke, inside an inside joke, inside an inside joke, like all the time. And then uh, Mastodon is lovely, but it's like most of the communities that I found on there, it's like uh, a little more on the dry side and less on like the fun random side. And so it's kind of nice to have a split where I can like go and catch up with the type people on Mastodon and like go for some goofy time on Blue Sky and then be on threads for sort of a mix. And so, yeah, but I do miss Twitter. Well, thank you, Jessica. I, I wanted to talk to you for a long time. We, we finally made it work. I'm excited to see you in March. It, you know, it's a two hour drive for me up to Logan, but you know, I'm going to figure it out for that, for that evening to come see yeah. you. Well, yeah. I have to do the hour and a half uh, drive from the airport. So maybe you can just scoop me on the way. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Give a little purpose to my driving besides just getting me there. There you go. Um, well, thank you. Um, and yeah, that's all I got. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Great talking. Great talking to you too. The podcast is done, man. <laughs>